Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we take a closer look at the Congressional Defense Budget Process uh, that is set to heat up over the next few weeks uh, as markups begin on the annual Defense Authorization and Defense Appropriations Bills. Uh, Truly, though, the process has been going on for quite some time here uh, over the spring and early summer, but it's getting more of the headlines uh, here recently. To help me with this somewhat esoteric topic at times, but one that is certainly very important, I'm joined by two guests from Forza DC, a woman-owned federal strategies and consulting firm. I am pleased to have with me Ms. Madison Archangeli. She is co-founder and managing partner, and Ms. Katie Nazartova, the Director of National Security and Technology Policy. Uh, before I introduce them, I, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Forza DC is a consultant of AOC. Uh, they are on board with AOC, helping us with our congressional education program. Uh, so they have been very helpful here uh, with us over the last uh, several weeks. Uh, and I wanted to have them on the show because they are in the prime position to really help us understand this process. So uh, Madison and Katie, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having us. We're happy to be here. All right. So to begin this uh, conversation, you know, just to kind of let our listeners know, uh, could you let the listeners know a little bit about Forza DC and what your mission is and and a little bit about why you're engaged in this area of congressional education and helping associations like the AOC engage Capitol Hill? Yeah, absolutely. So I started Forza DC about a year and a half ago. Um, and we cover defense issues, technology issues, cybersecurity issues, um, anywhere from, you know, within the defense space acquisition down to military personnel policy. Um, and, you know, when I founded the company, it was really important to me to work on behalf of clients whose ideas I think are good ideas. And as a former Hill staffer, ideas that I would look at and say, yep, happy to support this. How can my boss be helpful? Those are the people I want to work for today um, as Forza DC. So that's how we've approached the company, how Katie and I both look at it. You know, we actually came to get to know each other through common colleagues that we associate with, but I've known Katie now for quite some time, actually, from her previous stint with Congressman Rick Larson, uh, who many of our listeners will know about the Congressional EW Working Group on the Hill. Um, And, you know, I've had the, op- the the privilege to work with Katie. So, you know, it's great to have you both on the show. I can't think of two more, two better people to kind of help us walk through not just this topic of the defense budget, but also from the perspective of electronic warfare and this capability area, because you both are very familiar with this. Uh, so I appreciate you being on here. Um, so, you know, just to get started, uh, you know, AOC has been engaged with congressional education for some time. Um, it's ebbed and flowed over the years. Sometimes it heats up, sometimes it's it's 
uh, you know, left to kind of some of the the senior leaders on on the Hill to carry. But I want to talk a little bit about why for electronic warfare especially, you know, it's so important that our community really understand what's going on with the congressional defense budget process on an annual basis because a lot of times it's not in the headlines, but we are significantly affected by what goes on over these next few weeks. And so I wanted to get your take on why engaging in this education awareness for EW uh, is so important. Right. So I can kind of take that one. And I think the hardest thing with EW, especially for example, a congressional staffer, but I think also anyone dealing with kind of the funding lines is that unlike a lot of uh, other items, it's not just one or two kind of buckets that you fund that you can just tell Congress, please support this. There's various uh, spending lines all across the department, all across the services. And so for congressional staffers, education is so helpful to kind of know why is this important. First of all, what is EW? A lot of these staffers are relatively young, young professionals starting out and getting to know what EW is, why it's important, why it's important in DOD's transition to, uh, you know, China as the pacing challenge and why it's important in the fight in Ukraine um, and how it, uh, how, yeah, why it's important in today's uh, world with DOD and funding and why it should be prioritized. But how um, I think the biggest issue for staffers and speaking myself uh, in the last few years is identifying how to fund it, where to fund it, how to be most helpful, because right now um, it's just very hard to identify where it lives in the budget because it's everywhere. So that's kind of where AOC and where we come in um, as a resource for congressional staff to kind of point them in the right direction. Right. You, know, you mentioned young professionals. I, I think back to when you know, I, I came from Capitol Hill. Now it's, you know, I was on there 20 years ago. When my boss was first appointed to the Armed Services Committee, I thought I was going to do this great, you know, proactive thing and meet with the chief of staff or the staff director of the HASC um, and met with him and was like, okay, so what do, what do we do on this committee? You know, like what is our roles and responsibilities? And he takes this huge book, and this is before like internet and all, like, all this stuff was, you know, online and it was just a printed book of like 1500 pages. And he just picks it up and he just throws it at me and it lands like right on the couch. He's like, that's what we do. And I was, and I was overwhelmed because like, oh my God, like, how am I going to understand this 1500 page book? And then you start to leaf through it and you're like, everything is, it's not, it's, there's an order to it, but it's not easy to pick up right off the bat. So, um, you know, it, since from that point in time, it's been very important to just under, try to take time to learn the stuff. And so that's why we wanted to, to, to talk about this. So to get into this a little bit, and we have a lot of ground to cover, so we'll, we'll, we'll skip over a few things and then hopefully be able to circle back. But I think it's very important at the beginning to, to lay out, the, for the defense budget especially, what we hear as we hear about the National Defense Authorization Bill and the Defense Appropriations Bill. These are two separate bills, and I want but you don't always, for every spending item that comes through Congress, you don't always hear about these competing authorization and appropriations process. They are there for everything, but for the defense bill, which is the, I guess, the largest pot of discretionary spending that Congress can affect, 
they have an annual authorization process and an annual appropriations process. And these two move simultaneously and somehow end up at the same point. So could you uh, talk a little bit about these two bills? Where, How are they separate for, the, for the, 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 the listener out there who's not familiar? When we talk defense budget, these two bills and what they are both covering. Yeah, it, and I'll break it down in a really easy to understand way. Um, and Ken, you have you've heard me say this before. Um, you know, if you if you want to go to the movies and you you're still a kid, you know, you go and ask dad, dad, can I go to the movies? Dad says yes. That's an authorization. But then he says, go ask your mother for the money. So you say, okay, yes, I have one one yes. I go over to to mom to ask for the money, and she says, yes, here's the money. She's just appropriated the money. She's the appropriator. In that case, you get to go to the movies. But if dad had said yes and mom had said no, you don't get any money, you don't get to go to the movies. So that is a very simple way of explaining the difference between the two. Um, authorizing bills, they, the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, um, establishes policy for the Department of Defense. They can control what the department is spending money on, what they're not spending money on. They can put fences around funding to say you can only spend it if you get to this certain threshold or you do this certain thing, whereas appropriators can say, here's the money, now you actually have it to go and execute on this thing that the authorizers told you to do. So they work really closely together in establishing what are those funding lines, what programs are they going to prioritize, what are they going to cut. They're, you know, there's some competition there because they are different committees, um, but they also work very closely together to make sure that there's some there, there's some sense to what is coming out of Congress for the department. And that's a good that's a good analogy, and I won't complicate it further by introducing what my kids or how my kids would handle this this conversation, but um, because then it would get a little bit they figure out a way to still get the money and the authorization without actually going through the right routes, but. All that to say is I think that that's very important because when you hear these numbers tossed around by Congress, oftentimes they are referring to one bill or the other, and they don't always have to match up at the end of the day. Usually they're pretty close, but they're not necessarily identical. So when what happens when they're not identical? So, I mean, I know that sometimes we have the there, there's empty authorizations or or there's, uh, you know, something's authorized at a level that it's not funded at or how or sometimes there's a, a certain uh, there's certain language that will allow what's appropriated to kind of be authorized at that level. So, like, how, could you talk about how these bills, what it means when they're different uh, for the, the particular program? Yeah, I mean, it can be complicated. So if it's the appropriators put in more money than the authorizers do, then yippee for the department. That's a great thing for them because they now have more money to work with on that program. If they don't, um, it gets much more challenging. I think that's some of the concern around it. You know, I think that that just feeds into further the instability of what is Congress going to fund stuff at? Are we going to do another CR? Or are we going to actually pass appropriations bills? Um, you know, one of the important things about the Armed Services Committees is the NDAA is the really the primary authorization bill that passes every single year. And that's an unusual feat in Congress now. Um, there are some authorization bills that happen every couple of years, but generally speaking, a lot of them have stopped doing it, um, which is one of the reasons the NDAA is such a critical bill. It, it actually moves. And it, it also includes a lot of things that 
our defense, but also sometimes go beyond that too. Yeah, and, and there are some agencies, not defense related, uh, that are their, their authorization bill hasn't passed for years and years and years, and it's usually just some sort of general authorization is wrapped up in whatever's appropriated, or there's some other provision that's kind of allowing them to say, okay, you can still spend money, um, but there's not that oversight process. And so it is very important that that is done actually every year. And there's a nice, and I think Armed Services Committee really does have a very uh, easy to understand process to their hearings throughout the year where you kind of know year in and year out, okay, here's what they're going to be looking at. So with that, uh, like I said at the opening of the show, things are going to start to heat up a little bit or have already been going, but they're in the headlines more. So could you talk a little bit about what you're hearing in terms of the the, the outlook here for markups uh, and 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 you know, the bills coming to the floor? Yeah, so I can kind of take that one. And most of the markups, both for the National Defense Authorization Act and then the appropriation bills, are set to uh, take place in June. So that's going to include subcommittee marks, um, at least for the NDAA, which are usually very fast, very non-controversial. And those are just very specific policies um, that are put out in each subcommittee. So the cyber subcommittee has their own mark. It usually lasts about 10 minutes (laughs) and so on for all the other ones usually. And no amendments usually get introduced, so they go by very quick and get adopted. Then about a week or two later, mid-June, is the full committee mark, and this is kind of the big, long, famous thing that goes on for and until it's done, essentially. And uh, this includes a ton of amendment, a ton of debate about big issues, and then sometime in the late morning, once you get to the end of debate and amendments, it's adopted. And then the next step is for floor action. And as former staffers, I'm sure we all have kind of fun stories about what happens, you know, with these markups uh, at like midnight and 2 a.m. and having to wake up your boss at sleeping on the couch. (laughs) Yeah, my first one, I was there until seven in the morning the next day. (laughs) So that was a fun first introduction to being a staffer for (laughs) the NDAA. And, and really, so the, the full committee mark is where all the amendments from the committee are introduced, and that's where all the big ticket items are are talked about, and that's where a lot of the debate happens that can really kind of set the course for what's going to happen on the floor and so forth in the future. Before we get to the floor, though, what are you hearing, what are some of the big ticket items uh, that the committee is really going to have to grapple with or is planning, preparing to grapple with? Um not necessarily where the committee is going to reside on the issues, but what are some of the big ticket items that really are going to take up some attention here in the next few weeks? Yeah, so a lot of the times you can kind of guess what these are going to be from what's making the news and what's happening in the world. So I imagine Ukraine will come up. China always comes up. Um, Main things that come up are also nuclear issues, right? Uh, from debates on the Armed Services Committee that you've seen in this last in these last few months, you also have heard, you know, the vaccine mandate being a sticking point. In the last few months, uh, nationally, you've heard about abortion, gun rights, uh, inflation, so top line numbers, um, and then a kind of bipartisan thing that gets talked about usually with amendments during the markup is increasing uh, funding for like cyber or AI or 5G capabilities. So 
also, for example, EW, non-traditional capabilities, not ones that my old boss used to say you can just kick, (laughs) but that we should be investing in um, to be competitive in the future. So, and I'm sure, uh, I mean, it's going to depend also in the next few weeks if something comes up last minute, that might also end up being an amendment. So, but those I would imagine will probably make an appearance. I was just going to add, amendments get done, issues get advanced or shot down, but it's also an opportunity for members to voice, to to sort of position themselves politically on where they want to be on an issue. So sometimes you will see amendments offered and then withdrawn simply because the member wants to make a statement on something that's important to them. And they don't actually want to have a vote on it for any reason. And then that's the end of it, but they got their opportunity to speak about it in a public forum um, as it relates to the defense bill. And and a lot of times people will be like, well, why is such and such issue holding up the defense bill for this particular pro my 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 program or whatever might be of interest to them? And it's kind of what we talked about earlier is that this being the biggest authorization bill in terms of discretionary spending that Congress can affect, it by nature attracts just about every issue. It might seem like it's completely unrelated from a political sense, but you know, obviously DOD is the largest federal agency, so anything that can be affected within this, within DOD and federal agency, federal employees, I mean, the, the, it, it tends to find its way into this bill, which makes it highly, very complicated to kind of navigate through what we all think are the important issues of you know getting capabilities into the hands of the warfighter and some of these other, uh, other other issues that are might seem not as relevant to the average audience, but obviously they, this is the opportunity for Congress to affect it. So how does the committee, how does the committee leadership on both sides navigate this so that it doesn't just, I mean, we, we've had, I think, a defense authorization bill every single year for 60 years, I think now, I think we're going on for a long time, but you know, for decades, like how do they navigate this every year? It is a political dance, right? Like there's, there's a really strong desire within the Armed Services Committee to pass a bill. No one wants to mess around with national defense. They all take their jobs very seriously. They know who they're there working on behalf of, and it's the U.S. service member and our national security, and therefore the entire safety of the country. They take that very seriously. So while there is an effort to appease members and bring member interests in so that they will support the bill, there's also, they're walking the fine line of, what can we accept that will get this bill passed and what can we not accept because that's a bridge too far. And you see both sides managing different components of their party to try to keep this bill in the middle so that it will pass and it will all the, all the important policy that is contained in it gets made into law. And it it is a very bipartisan effort, uh, Bill at the, usually at the end of the day, I mean, it's overwhelmingly bipartisan. It is. And you see that, I mean, that starts from the top. The chairman and the ranking member, they both prioritize that. They prioritize working together. They're very strategic thinkers and they disagree on a lot of things, but they there's also many things they agree on. And that's one of them. Also, the strategic push of you not wanting to be the year that doesn't pass it in the last 60 years. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for their continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So before we get to the floor, then, two more questions. Uh, one is, you know, Katie mentioned, you know, obviously Ukraine will be a big ticket item. And we've talked about Ukraine on the show um, obviously, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, Congress has, uh, has appropriated a lot of emergency funding for Ukraine um, that is actually outside of the authorization process. Um, and, you know, it g goes back to, you know, we, there, there were for years, you know, we were doing this outside of the authorization process. Um, be, you know, for Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we would fund a bill, we would authorize certain things, but then there'd be that emergency wartime slash, uh, you know, national security funding that wasn't in the budget, but we still have to do. 
How do you anticipate the committee using this opportunity to say, okay, everything we've done is good, we've approved it, but we need to make sure that strategically moving forward, you know, our capabilities, what we're investing in are aligned with how we're going to be influencing or intervening in this region of the world. Uh, because in some ways, what they're going to be considering is after the fact of, to all the money that's already been appropriated. So how does that work in the Hask? Yeah, and I can take that. I mean, it's probably going to include um, a lot of oversight roles, a lot of what is going to happen with the allies that we work in. I mean, especially within this administration and with this Congress and the bills in the past, alliances have been a big staple of uh, what is happening in Ukraine and what's happened in the last few months. Um, And I think just how Congress and how the U.S. government is going to track the spending that's happened and going to see that it is going to the things that Congress intentionally appropriated for, um, I think that's probably going to live in this bill in some way or another. So when the the committee marks up the bill uh, and it it goes to the House floor, one of the questions that I always get every year is, you know, the the bill comes to the House floor or in the Senate floor. There's a House version and a Senate version, and they pass their respective chambers and then they meet in conference. Um, But when the bills pass their respective chambers or their respective committees and are marked up, there's report language. And that report language has the effect of law in the sense of it can trigger certain actions, but the bill's not passed yet. And so you have legislative action and your legislative provisions and direct report language. And it, sometimes it confuses a lot of people because it's like, well, is this a law or is this what are the what is Congress asking? So could you talk a little bit about you have the bill in front of you? If you feel inspired someday to look up the bill and you have the bill in front of you, you there's Tell the difference between direct report language and then legislative provision, what that means in terms of the process. Yeah. So like you said, report language, as soon as the bill passes out of committee, um, and if it includes direct report language, that is report language. That is the Congress telling the department, we are asking you to report on this thing. Or sometimes it's not so direct. Sometimes it's a nudge or an encouragement of basically to let the department know we're paying attention to this. Um, but it's it's an opportunity for the committee and for Congress to shape what is happening in the department without passing a law telling them to do it. And sometimes it's useful because they don't know what they want the law to say yet, but they know there's a problem. So they want the department to report back and say, here's what we found on this issue that will then, in subsequent years, shape potential bill language. And I would say the biggest plus of report language is that once it's done, it's done. It doesn't have to go through the whole conference prog- like process. You know that what you've written at that moment is law, uh, whereas like bill language has to go through conference. So it has to then like the both Senate and House sit down and come to this agreement and your language might be somewhat different or very different or not make it into the bill in the first place. But with report language, even if it is not bill language, it's law. Just to, and then to expand off the conference process, but during the conference process, you know, Katie mentioned things can come out, things can be tweaked. Language comes out if it's in one bill and not the other bill. So if it's in the house version and not in the Senate version, then that's what's considered conferenceable. Or if the language is, there's similar provisions, but it's just different enough, that can also be conferenced. 
And so those are the things that are potentially vulnerable. Uh, if they made it into one and someone hates it, they can spike it in the dead of night and it comes out and you don't know who did it, why it was done. As a house person, I always blame the Senate, but that's just me. <laughs> um, but that's how that process works a little bit more. And and, and that's why it's, it's a kind of, you know, it's very important, you know, when we get into congressional education, get people uh, to get staff kind of understanding what's in the bill and what is going on in DOD earlier in the process, because then they can start to highlight some of these items before it gets to that point where, you know, quite frankly, the conference process, I mean, it's, it doesn't include everybody. It, it can also, it can oftentimes be done very quietly or very, you know, with a small group of people appointed, you know, from the committee leadership. And so if they don't understand it, if they're not keyed into it, it, it might just slip out and it's not a, uh, it is usually the Senate's fault. I agree with you, Madison. I mean, like, let, let's be honest, but no, it's, uh, you know, I come from the House side as well. So um, it's, it, but it, it, it can, it, it's important to get people to talk about this stuff as early as possible so that it's easier later in the process to raise it as a concern to make sure that it gets in there. So, so the conference, and, and you did get a little bit ahead of me, but that's, that's okay. Cause we're just having a, a good conversation here. But before we get to the conference, um, which is going to be very kind of interesting this year, the floor, when is it, when is it expected to be on the floor this year, both bills? In July, the date hasn't been set yet. It hasn't been noticed. Uh, but usually in years past, it's a couple of weeks after markup. So that, there's a lot of back office that happens with a multi-thousand page bill that people just don't see. And ledge council, those are the people who write the bill. They need time to put everything together again after it's been changed and amended in the markup. So sometime in July, especially since it's an election year, there'll be a huge push to get it done before August. Because after August, Congress will really slow down. And there's usually a push to do authorization before appropriation Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. So, but that in general is what folks try to do. You mentioned it is going to slow down a little bit over August. Obviously, that's that's an annual thing. But then you have the election year. The fiscal year ends September thirtieth. So, what is the from your from your vantage point? And and this is not and you know this is just from your engagements on the Hill. What is your expected outlook for these bills and? the fiscal year? I mean, is there going to be a CR? What do we need to keep in mind as this process moves forward that when are we going to have a, a defense budget signed into law or hope to have one? I mean, I will, again, echo my past boss when I say no one ever wants a CR, um, whether it's Congress or especially DOD. I mean, whoever else, uh, CR is not what folks are working towards. However, the big thing to consider this year is that the appropriation bill that was signed into law for this year was very late. It was signed into law essentially at the beginning of the year. And I would say a lot of the issues that folks had then, I doubt, have been resolved. So those will probably kind of seep into this year. However, um, the big caveat is that people will want to kind of get all of this over with before August so that these issues don't creep up on them when they are going to their districts to campaign in October. And so they will want to kind of, you know, control their headlines for the lack of better words. But um, I mean, as 
excited as people are to kind of get this done as they are every year, um, it'll depend on what the big sticking points are. And sometimes the sticking points are easier to come to kind of an agreement on and a compromise. And sometimes they're not. So it'll, it'll just kind of be up to that. So do you think that there, there definitely will be a CR though for, I mean, will there, there be enough time after August recess and before the kind of the election coming up for the, substantive work to be done out in the open? I mean, I would say it all depends if they're able to pass these bills out on the floor, if both Senate and House are able to do that prior to August, and they're able to go into conference prior to August, then they have quite a bit of time. This last year, um, just how it was, I think, at least for NDAA, I mean, appropriations, I don't think Senate ever passed some of the bills out of on the floor at all. So I think conference was just very, very short. So then it's just staff kind of bending over backwards to try to come to an agreement on two pretty different bills. And so I think there is a CR is less likely if they're able to do this before August. But again, uh, things change here at a drop of a hat. So (laughs) I can't say ever for sure. Yeah, I think I I agree with Katie. I think I, I see. I, I may be more pessimistic. I think a CR is probably more likely than not. Um, but there is time, right? There is time for them to get it all done, even though they will be out in August and October. That's still time to do it. They just... And that essentially... Yeah, and I think what people need to, or a lot of times don't understand, is even if the members aren't voting, the staff are very much still working. Yeah. Um, they're not on vacation, really, ever. <laughs> So for conference, I mean, staff are working around the clock until their issues get resolved. So just to kind of, you know, put a bow on this, and and obviously I'm going to, you know, have you back on uh, once we kind of get through some of these markups and hearings to kind of talk a little bit more about the pro, what's in the budget, what's in the bills that Congress passed, and what what did Congress say about some of the technologies and capabilities that are important to the EW community. Right now it's still kind of, you know, it's just in the president's budget and there's there's not a lot of talk yet, but we'll have you back on in a couple months. But just, you know, to kind of put a bow on some of this discussion, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the trends. Katie mentioned earlier as one of the big ticket items, you know, the, the increasing defense budget w- with inflation. But obviously there's been a lot of, this is not a new discussion. Um, you know, what is, what should the top line of defense spending be? How should it, how should it grow in comparison to, you know, our GDP and so forth? wanted to get your thoughts on some of the trends about where you see Congress going, um, particularly with increasing defense budgets and then kind of this use of supplemental funding, this off-budget stuff, which really kind of started it heavily when I was on the Hill back in 2001, 2002 timeframe with uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, but really then exploded almost to a point of being misused for quite some time. Uh, went away, and then now, not that it's coming back it yet, but like there is that element of like how do you control defense spending, or how do you manage it? I should say in light of some of this these process issues with supplemental funding and 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 of course wanting to go for a top line level. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with, and I I will caveat that I agree with the position that my old boss has taken. The Department of Defense needs to spend their money smarter. 
and there's better ways to do some of the things that they're doing um, with the money that they already have. And, you know, I think the world is changing, threats are changing, and evaluating what exactly do we actually need to meet those threats is a really hard conversation to have, both from a, it's changing and we have to figure it out, but also from a perspective of there's a lot of politics at play in that conversation as well, that, you know, there's uh, the phrase it's, I have heard is the facts are interesting and unimportant sometimes. Um, and that's, it's true. Anytime you're talking about politics, I think, you know, we'll continue to see the defense budget grow. Um, there's a strong push for that, certainly on the Republican side of the aisle, but also from some Democrats as well. Um, we saw that with the defense bill last year, there was a huge plus up, which actually benefited a lot of programs that needed the money. But so I think we're going to continue to see that. And before I let Katie chime in, I will just add on supplemental. I think it, you know, when a cash infusion is needed, it's really important, but it also makes it really hard to plan. It makes it hard for the department to plan in the long run um, if that's what they're dependent on to get funding. And I don't think that helps national security to, to be flying by the seat of our pants, to be throwing money at things as it comes rather than investing in the long term, looking ahead. From an EW perspective, you know, in, in the past, you, we've had these episodic investments into EW, and a lot of it's been through quick reaction or something that's been through supplemental funding, wartime funding. It looks good on paper, but you don't always get the best solution in the field. And that's true with almost any capability. When you go outside of this kind of very intentional process of oversight and authorization that happens with Congress where you can kind of step back and say, okay, how are we doing long-term over the course of, you know, future years? Um, like you said, it's, it's, it's good for like when you have an emergency, but you can get reliant on that really easily, particularly in, 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 in when a, there's a crisis out there that uh, I think sometimes we just assume that, oh, we're, we're passing the, we're, we're getting the money for the movie from our, from our parent, going back to your analogy, you know, like that's, that's great. That only can, really go so far because that's not the best way to do it. Um, and really would like to, you know, wh what do you see as how do we get back to kind of more responsible budgeting process um, overall, like in terms of how we manage this, this, uh, this year-long annual process and, and, and all the various competing interests that go into it? I mean, I would say that the biggest thing is kind of what AOC is doing on EW, education. I mean, because as past staffers, we all know that you are, especially as a house staffer, you're not just handling defense. You're handling like 10 other issues as well. So for one person to really, really know every facet of the defense budget is impossible. <laughs> so for organizations like AOC to come and educate staffers who have a hand in defense policy, especially W policy, and telling them, this is what this is. These are the programs that are important to fund. So once you are making that ask of the DOD, once you are crafting these bills, these are the things that you should be looking at. Um, and I think if staffers have more access to organizations like that, that they can resource and really trust, then that will make their lives infinitely easier. <laughs> I would also add, stepping back farther, it's a bigger problem across Congress uh, that really gets fixed by looking at gerrymandering and looking at how are these districts made up so that members are representing districts that are much more bipartisan, much more di you know 
I'm going to use the word diverse, diverse in terms of Democrats versus Republicans, of looking at, you know, that's how you put people in the middle so that they actually have to talk to one another. But if they represent a district that is really strongly blue or really strongly red, there's no incentive. They're, they want to get reelected. So they're going to, and, and you know, in that way, they're representing their constituents. And that's exactly what they should be doing. But if they have a more bipartisan district, it sort of pushes everyone into the middle to then have these difficult conversations and come to some sort of a normal budget process that we have not seen for quite some time. That's an interesting point. And obviously with the election coming up, I mean, you're, you're, we're seeing it kind of real time happening. And, you know, there's a lot of question marks about like, what will be the resolution this year? Because this election is coming up and it is a very, um, I mean, it, sides have already been drawn, quite frankly, in terms of, you know, where, where certain uh, bills are going to go or how, how that process is going to go in anticipation of what the outcome of November is going to be. And this goes back to something that really bothered me since my time on the Hill is is if you look and I did an article uh, for our newsletter, one of our newsletters, I guess, last year, two years ago, looking at kind of the historical record of when we've finally gotten the defense bill passed. And, you know, we talked, you know, it's, it's always been a bipartisan bill. And when I was on the Hill, it was always done by mid-September, both bills. And it gradually started getting later and later and later. And now over the past five years, it's just December. And now it's kind of like, okay, yeah, we're, we're, we'll get it done by December. Sounds great because that's the end of the calendar year, but the fiscal year started in September, you know, October 1st. So there is, you know, from my vantage point, like when you talk about this, you know, political environment on Capitol Hill, you know, it's become so red and so blue that there's not that resolve to actually come together prior to a self-imposed kind of crisis of deadlines. And we start to lose that, you know, it starts to get pushed further, you know, later in the year. And I think that, that we have to figure out a way to get that back in and respect the fiscal year calendar because programs depend on that when you're looking out future years and so forth. And there's cascading effects that I just don't think we pay enough attention to. So that's my own personal view on it. And I agree that, you know, we have to figure out a way to, to kind of bring that conversation back to the middle a little bit. So with that, I'll look forward to having you back on here, uh, you know, obviously probably sometime in July or August, you know, when we can kind of take a look, take a step back, look at the bill and kind of figure out where some of the program funding is. But I do want to thank you for taking time and talking a little bit about this process that we're going to hear a lot more about over the next couple of weeks. So thank you for joining me on here from the Crow's Nest. It's great to have you. It was great being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Well, that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guests, Ms. Madison Archangeli and Ms. Katie Nazaratova for joining me to talk about this important topic of the Congressional Defense Budget. I also want to draw your attention to our sister podcast, The History of Crows, which chronicles the history of electromagnetic warfare from the earliest inventors and operations to present day. As always, our audience is important to us. We're always looking for ways to improve our show, so please take some time to Uh, rate us and comment. Uh, You can also contact us by visiting our website at crows.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. 
check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.